Amen. Well, good morning, and again, I'm glad that you're here this morning with us. We have a special ceremony this morning as we appoint Mike Linstead, who was just up here, to the office of elder. And so as we do this this morning, I thought we would take a break in our Luke series, and uh, I wanted to just take this week break to start a... Uh, to, to hear a, a kind of a standalone message and um, on, the, uh, on the leadership in God's church. I thought it'd be a perfect opportunity as we have this special ceremony this morning as we'll pray for Mark, Mike when I'm, when I'm done um, and as we appoint him to this office to just take a week here to take a week break, a bit of a standalone message and talk about leadership in God's church leadership in God's church. It's a perfect opportunity to do so as we appoint Mike this morning. So the office of, of eldership, it's a wonderful office. It's so important uh, to the life of the church. It's an important doctrine or teaching of, of scripture that we must understand. And if we want God's church to be everything that, uh, that God wants it to be, uh, we must take heed to, to what he says. Um, to what God says about this office. And maybe some of you are a little bit confused. You've never understood how leadership in the church works, and you want to make sure that you understand this rightly and live under the right rule and leadership in the church. And so today we'll give you some clarity. I want to jump right in this morning and see if we can't give you some clarity about this issue. And so I really want to give three real um, points here, three headings to really hang your thoughts on. So this morning, as we talk about eldership, we're going to talk about the position, number one, the position itself, that is, what does the Bible say about this position of leadership in the church? Secondly, we'll talk about some practical principles the, that, that God gives about this position of leadership. And these will be a little bit scattered. We'll just try to touch on as much as we can. We can't cover everything this morning, but hopefully uh, as we talk about this, it'll give you a little bit of clarity about it. And then third, we'll talk about the person. So who is this that gets appointed to this role? How do we do that? How in the world do you choose who leads God's church? And who... Uh, and who and how do we get that person into position? So the position, some practical principles, and then the person. And so let's start this morning with number one, the position. The position. As we see this from Scripture, let's just talk a little bit about the position. And this morning, we're going to turn a little bit in our Bibles. So get make, make sure your Bible is ready, because I'm going to have you flip, because I want you to see these things yourself. But let me start out with this and tell you that God has appointed in his church leaders to rule and to teach and to govern his flock. God in his sovereignty has appointed in his church leaders to rule or to teach or to govern his flock. The church itself is made up of believers, those who are make up the church. The church is made up of believers, okay? The church is made up of believers. That's the true church, the true church. And in Acts 20, 28, Paul says the church is God's, and it is made up of those who have been purchased by Christ's blood. That's the church. And they have become God's possession. If you're part of God's church, you've become God's possession, you're his. You've been purchased by Christ's blood. 
And uh, he purchased them, the church, and now possesses them. They are his possession. You are not of your own. You are of Christ's if you are in Christ. Titus 2.14 says that they are those who have been purchased or redeemed for God's possession. And here's a, an attribute of those people. They're zealous for good works. They are now people who are zealous for good works. So they've been purchased by Christ. They're possessed by Christ. And now they're people who are eager, zealous for good works. 1 Peter 2, 9 says that they are possessed by God, and here's another attribute, to proclaim his excellencies and to proclaim his salvation. So they're people who are purchased by God, purchased through the blood of Christ, who are zealous for good works, and who now are eager to proclaim his excellencies, his salvation to the lost world. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19 says that they are God's possession, again, and that they are indwelt by his spirit. They're indwelt by his spirit. So these, these people have been possessed by God, purchased by God. They are ones who are zealous for good work. They proclaim his excellencies, and they're indwelt by his spirit. The church, then, is made up of those who are God's possession saved by the gospel of Christ, those for whom Christ has died to pay the penalty for their sin. They are forgiven by Christ. They're made righteous in his sight. His spirit now indwells them. They have zeal to be good and to do good. According to his word, God plans to use them to proclaim his name and his gospel. They have his spirit inside. They are highly precious. They are highly valued by God, his church. They are highly esteemed by the Lord. They are those whom he predestined and those whom he saved. Now, God, in his authority and in his sovereignty, has appointed leaders to care for, to teach, to rule, to govern, to oversee, to protect, to be examples to his people. That is his church. So according to Ephesians 4, these leaders are gifts to the church. As I read earlier today, they're to mature the church in right doctrine, in right character, to equip the church, to serve itself, as I mentioned, and that is to love one another or to counsel one another or to, to help one another, to meet with one another, to meet each other's needs, to care about each other. And so the church, as I mentioned, is to kind of care for itself it's to not be tossed to and fro by wrong doctrine. It's to build itself up in love. It's to mature practically in its faith. And the elders are the ones, as we saw in the very beginning of that passage, are the ones who are to equip these pastors, teachers. Now, the leaders, let me talk about this position in a, uh, in a sp very specific and, and pretty technical way for you to understand and see if I can't give you some clarity about what the Bible says. These leaders are called elders. So God has his church. He's appointed leaders to lead it. And those leaders are called elders. But the New Testament really gives three names for, these, uh, for, for this person, for this office, for these leaders. These three different roles of the same office. There's three different roles of the same office. The three names would be elder, shepherd or pastor, and overseer. And so I want to point out this morning, if you can, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And I'd love for you to turn there. So, so again, please 
do so, please open your Bible. If you have one on your phone, if you don't have one, please grab one in the seat pocket in front of you. If you're sure you, you know the Bible, I've heard it a hundred times, I don't need to open and listen. Um, you're wrong. Open the Bible and look at what it says so you can understand what it says, okay? So open the Word so you can look at it yourself. Acts chapter 20. And I want to start here in verse 17, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And what I want to show you from this section are the three different titles or positions or functions that the Bible has given regarding these leaders of the church. We're talking about the position now itself. And so we see here in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the what? Elders of the church to come to him. And so here we see this first term used, elders, elder. There it is, the word presbyteros in, in the Greek, and it's from the word presbyteros, okay, which can mean uh, older in age, elder, right, but not necessarily, not necessarily. We got to be careful to interpret it that way as uh, right, off, right off the cuff, right? And so Paul, we know that Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor, when Paul ordained Timothy, left him in Ephesus to teach and rebuke false doctrine, as we see, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul says to Timothy, he says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your what? Youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in impurities. And so it's this term elder, not necessarily referring to one who is older, though that could be an attribute of it, but one who does something very specific, and that is one who sets an example. So why don't you just turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I told you it would be turning. I want to point out a few things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through, 11 through 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 11 through 12, and I just want to point out some things. We'll come back to this Acts chapter 20, so leave your finger there. That's going to be a, that's going to kind of be our, uh, our hub for a little while here. And I want to come back to that term elder used there. But before we do, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, if we look at verses 11 through 12 here, Paul says this to Timothy, command and teach these things. I just spoke this to you. Command to teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love in faith in purity. And uh, it says in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to the exhortation, to the teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which has been given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so this is Paul instructing young elder Timothy, who's obviously young here, and he is speaking of a number of things, and we're going to get to really kind of the meaning of the word in a second, but he's speaking of his teaching here. He says, in, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Listen now to the exhortation and to the teaching. So that's what preaching is. It's the public reading of the scripture to teaching the scripture and then to exhorting with the scripture, right? Pretty simple. You read it, you explain it, and then you encourage people to follow it, right? And so that's what he's telling 
Timothy to do here. And so then he's, he's, he's instructing him in, in a few more things. Verse 15, he says, practice these things. In the context, he's referring to his teaching. So he's got to practice his teaching, right? Immerse yourself in them. That's why the pastor's main job is to study so he can teach rightly. And he says, so all may see your progress. So this young elder hasn't arrived completely yet in his ability to teach, but he's faithful and his congregation is going to say, as he teaches week after week, right, say it all might see your progress. Wow, you're really progressing. Wow, you've really grown in your teaching. Wow, you, you, you've really uh, grown in your ability to make the Bible clear. You're always accurate. The structure of your outline is, is easily followed. You help me so much understand the word of God. So this, this is what Paul is, in te- is instructing Timothy in. And again, he says of his teaching in this context, in verse 16, keep a close watch on who first? Yourself, that means his holy character, and on the teaching, right? Not false teaching, but right teaching. He says, persist in this. Persist in what? In keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, for by doing so, verse 16, you will save yourself because you've kept a close watch on your own soul, and you will save who else? Your hearers, because you've kept a close watch on your teaching, which is why, by the way, right teaching is so important. Uh, rebuking false doctrine is so important because salvation is at stake here. So we can see this is a young believer, I mean, a, 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 a young man who is a believer in Christ, but he is to be, listen now, listen, a spiritual and biblical example, right? Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but instead set a what? Example, and he must teach rightly, right? And so back to Acts chapter 20, go back to Acts chapter 20 here, and, uh, and we're back in verse 17 where he calls him elder, and elder is one of these titles of this office, and it can refer to one who is older, but not necessarily as we just saw, right? So it's an office filled by then what? By one who is mature in the faith. One who is mature in the faith. One who's elder. One who is to be respected. One who is to be highly esteemed. And they are to be examples to the church. So the elder is to be primarily, this, this word here connotes being an example then to the church. The church is to watch their lives, listen now, follow their example, to imitate their way of life in the Lord. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of who? Christ. That's what the elder is. You're supposed to watch his life and say, oh, I got to do that. Oh, I got to do that. Who? I got to do that, right? You're supposed to watch his life. He's an example. He's one who's mature in the faith. He could be older, but that doesn't necessarily have to be, but he must be one who sets an example, who teaches rightly. And so now we've got this first one understood. This is the elder of the church. And by the way, this is the most frequent term that is used when talking about leadership in the church. But we've got more here. Look down now in Acts chapter 20 to verse 28. If we jump down to verse 28, we say, we see this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so Paul says to these elders, listen now, he's speaking to the same people. Okay. This is why I brought you to this text because all three of the New Testament titles or functions for this particular leader in the 
church are brought together in this one passage to show us that they're talking about the same person, the same office. So he says to this, to these elders, pay careful attention to themselves. There's that idea again that we saw in first Timothy. And he says, pay attention to all the what? Flock. Now, this word flock here, poimain, uh, has the root word poimain, which means uh, really it's this is here talking about an official flock, okay? A formal flock, a Christian disciples, right? This is a, a formally put together, established flock. This word here has this root poimain, and it, and it speaks of a, a, a flock that is, is officially under the care of somebody. So that's going to come into, into uh, um, perspective in just a minute. So keep that in mind. It's an official flock. But it has the same root word, the word that translates as shepherd or pastor. That poimain is this root that is also used in various forms and is translated as shepherd or pastor. And again, in some verse, uh, in this, this verse here, look down at verse 28 again. It says, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Okay, there again, I told you that root word for that sometimes translated shepherd or pastor is in that, all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Look at verse 28, to care for, that has that same root word there, um, poimain, and so it should be really translated as shepherd, to shepherd um, the flock, okay? So, so we got this second role, this second function, this title is a shepherd or is a pastor, okay? A pastor. Um, they, they mean the same thing, shepherd, pastor, which mean the same thing and has the same root word, poimain, and it's translated sometimes as both, shepherd or, or pastor. And so really, this, uh, th- this various forms of this word are point, to, point us to what this means, to shepherd or to pastor. It means to rule or to take care of. And it always refers to a formal flock, as I mentioned. And... Um, and so when we see this word, shepherd or pastor, in the scripture, it's given to us really in three different forms, okay? The, 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 the root word here. It's the, the actual person or the noun, right? It's given to us also secondly in a verb or the actions of the person, right? To shepherd. Or it's given to us really um, as the ones who are receiving the action, which is pointing us to the flock, right? So it's a noun or direct object. So we're seeing this idea here that this is either, when the word's used, it's either talking about the person or it's talking about their action, or it's talking about the ones who are receiving this action, okay? And so as I mentioned, the ones who are receiving is the flock. Well, the one, the person is the shepherd or pastor, the superintendent or the guardian or the herdsman. The action is to feed or to tend to or to care for or to herd. We got a lot of herding going around here or to guard, or to oversee in that way. And the group, again, is the particular flock of Christian disciples. And so this is, this is what we see is, is uh, the other re- reference to the leader of God's church. Now, when we say this, let me tell you, the main job of this shepherd is to feed. The main job of the shepherd, we know, is to feed. He leads by feeding, okay? Now, keep that in mind. He leads by feeding. If you go to John chapter 21, turn with me, John chapter 21. I want to show you something. John chapter 21. I told you we'd be moving a lot here, but John chapter 21. 
in verses 15 and 17. Remember this situation with Peter, the apostle Peter? When Jesus, after he had kind of restored Peter, says this, and he's kind of restoring him still. He says in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he asked him, a th- or he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now listen now, what, what Jesus is doing here and the structure of what he's saying is that the, the first and the, and the third interpret the middle. So he says, feed, tend, feed. It'd be like if I were to say, why haven't you called me back? Just reach out to me. Call me back, right? Call me back. Just reach out. Why haven't you called me back? Right? I, the, the, the middle is kind of interpreted by the ends. And so Jesus is saying here, tend by feeding. That's exactly what he's saying. And we understand that. Now, what does he mean by feed? Or what does the Bible mean by the, the elders of the church feeding the church? Well, it's pretty clear. Remember in John chapter six, when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my what? Blood, right? And they were all uh, just offended by what Jesus said. But he says down later in verse, uh, in verse um, 54, I think. No, he says that in verse 54. But then he says down later in that same passage in verse 63, he says, my words, that's what you're to feed on. That's what should give you life. That's what gives you life is my words. And so Jesus is making very clear what the people of God, the disciples of Christ should eat. And what is it? His what? His words. They're to feast on his words, right? And so putting this all together, this is what the shepherd is to lead the church with, that he would lead them by feeding them the what? The word. Now, I know I'm moving around here, and hopefully this is somewhat clear to you, but I just want to make clear to, to you that this is the, the, the second uh, title and or function of the, the leadership in the church. Back to Acts 20. I want to show you more here. Go back to Acts chapter 20. And as we talk about verse 28, as I told you, that's twice used in this, in this verse, this root poimain, which points to the sh- shepherd or pastor. But um, he, uh, this is what the, the elder is supposed to do. He's supposed to shepherd or pastor. Now, Paul goes on to say here in this same verse, look at it, verse 28, just to move us along. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. Now, this is the third role or function or title that we see in the New Testament. As I mentioned before, really, I'm showing you this passage because throughout the New Testament, all three of these are used. And in this passage, and then in one more passage, which I'm going to show you, all three of these are put together, showing that they're not talking about separate leaders or separate offices or separate people. They're talking about the same one. There's just three different functions or three different titles uh, for them. And so here he calls them overseer. And uh, really, as we look at this, this overseer, he, he says the Holy Spirit has made these elders, pastors, he's made them overseers. This is the word episkopos, uh, from the word episkopos, and it's an ecclesiastical overseer of the church. And, um, and it's interesting to see how this word is translated throughout the New Testament, but uh, it sheds influence upon its meaning. It's really an inspector. 
It's an inspector. It's one who looks at observantly to inspect what's going on. It's a watcher. It's a guardian. It's one who sees to it. Okay, it's an overseer in that sense. He sees to it and he inspects, he watches as he inspects observantly. He's, he's to be circumspect. When, when this form of the word is used for God's activity, it, it speaks of God inspecting the heart or inspecting the people, either in judgment or in mercy. And so this overseer is to inspect, to make sure everything is in line with the word of God. And so really this passage in Acts points us to all three. Now, just for time's sake, I know I'm moving us fast. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, this is where these three terms are going to be brought together one more time. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. He says, so I, it says this, so I exhort the, what? Elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, do what? Verse 2. Shepherd the flock, right? There we see this official flock and this, uh, this it's used in, in verb form here to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising what? Oversights. This is the function of the overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And he goes on to say, not domineering over those in your care, but being examples to the what? Flock. And so this, this really is the, the other passage that we see these different functions. And so let me just tell you this, that when we talk about the position, listen now, when we talk about the position of this person, in the church, he's to be an example, one who's mature in the faith, one who is to be one who is to be imitated by the congregation. He's to be respected and esteemed. He's to feed the flock, to teach them, to lead them, to protect, superintend, to shepherd. He's to inspect and oversee and guard and watch and see to it. This is a different office than deacon, which is the only other office in the church. There's only two, right? The elder and the deacon. And so when we get uh, various um, people lobbying for authority and different uh, committees that are put together with uh, lobbying for different authority in the church, that's unbiblical. There's two positions of, of real authority in the church. That's the elders and deacons. And when you get that, you often get church splits, right? And you see it damaged the church. These are the two offices. I'll talk about deacons probably another time in another message um, that we can talk about. But so far, we've seen this term elder, uh, shepherd, overseer. Now, let me tell you this. Elder is used most frequently, okay, in the Bible. This is the most frequent title that's used, and it denotes an example, uh, wisdom, respect, and uh, often the other two are used in verb form, okay? A verb form to describe the function, someone who shepherds or someone who over what? Oversees. So those are often used in verb form rather than noun form as a title, okay? So now let's see some of these practical principles that come along. This is the position. It's the elder, it's the shepherd, it's the overseer, it's the pastor. By the way, all pastors are elders, all elders are pastors, all pastors and elders are overseers. It's all synonymous. And so I know some churches here have some that are pastors but not elders and some that are elders and not pastors, etc. That's uh, unbiblical and, and uh, the, the, they're synonymous. This, these words are synonymous for the same office, the same person, and they're just different functions for the same one. And so let's see some of these practical principles that come along with the position. And I want to end then with a, a real 
practical uh, talk on how this is carried out or who is appointed to this position. We'll get there We'll get there soon. So let's talk about some practical principles here, okay? Some practical principles. Now, I can't give you all of them, but just some things that you should know as we, as we talk about this position in the church. First, in Acts 15, and even in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, we see that they're to agree on all things. These elders in the church are to agree. They're to agree on doctrine, mainly. Agree on doctrinal issues. And so we have to understand they're to be of the same mind or to speak the same thing or to have the same judgment about anything regarding the doctrine within the church. And so uh, they're, they're to speak the same things, to have the same beliefs, to have the same convictions, right? To have the same standards, uh, to expect the same behavior, uh, to, have, to abide by the same principles. And all of, all of our teachers in our church, right, uh, we make sure that we are uh, standing on firmly um, the, the doctrines that are taught in the scriptures. We have to make sure that we're standing firm on these doctrines. Some churches, they'll, you know, put a Sunday school teacher in place, they say, you know, we don't really care what you teach as long as you got a lot of people in that class, right? But that's not how we do that here. That doesn't matter to us. What matters is that we have the same understanding of the scriptures. We have the same understanding about what it teaches. Some might say, well, isn't it good to have different perspectives? Not really, because that just causes what? Confusion. And so they must agree. Now, also here in talk, talking about agreement, you have to, agreement from then the congregation with the leadership. You have agreement from the congregation with the leadership. So there's agreement on doctrine among the elders, and then there's agreement from the congregation with the leadership. Let me turn to uh, help you turn, uh, help you understand this through turning to First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians. Chapter 5. Turn there in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want to point out a couple of things here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I told you you'd be turning a lot here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So there are some people who are over you in the Lord. Uh, that's what this verse says. That, that means they have the right to make decisions for you regarding your spiritual life. Uh, they have the right to lead you, make decisions for you in the Lord, and you're to love and respect them, it says here, and to be, then we'll see in a minute, at peace among yourselves. So to, to, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are what? Over you in the Lord. And what do they do at the end of this verse, verse 12? Admonish. That means to warn. They warn you. They're constantly, they're over you in the Lord. They have right to make decision for you in the Lord, and they're constantly warning you, right? And then it says that you are to be uh, at peace among yourselves. Look at verse 13. To esteem them very highly in love because of their works. And uh, I always love to say that verse out loud. Just kidding. All right. And to be at what? Peace among your what? Cells. What that means here in this context is that you don't, you, you don't stir up things among the congregation. You don't stir up things regarding disagreements when it has relationship to, to the leadership. It says, um, and you say, well, some do that. Some, some do stir up things and some don't agree with the leadership. Well, it, say, it tells us what to do there in verse uh, 14. It says, and then we urge you brothers, admonish. What did I say that word means? 
warn, right? The idle. Well, it's better translated than the NASB, um, the unruly. So you have those who rule over you in the Lord, right? Those who you've submitted to in terms of eldership, leadership, uh, shepherd, pastor, as you've come to uh, belong to a church, and then you are to uh, esteem them and they are to rule to help make decisions in your spiritual lives and to guide you. And then the church then for itself amongst each other, they're supposed to warn those who are on what? Unruly, the ones who then uh, are, are not going to be ruled in any particular way. It's pretty clear here, okay? And so there's to be agreement with the congregation and the leadership. And Hebrews 13 is another good passage to point this out. Why don't you turn there? Just turn to your right a little bit. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your what? Souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So if you grieve your leadership, if they get discouraged and they get uh, despondent, and they get distracted because of the unruly response to their leadership, then they can't minister to you effectively, and then you're the loser. You're the loser. And so uh, there must be agreement in the congregation with, with the leadership. Now, there also must be agreement and decision-making with the elders. They're to have the same mind. And we see this in Acts 15 again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's, uh, 1 verse 10. They're supposed to have an agreement and speak the same things. And so agreement among the elders as well. And so you should know this. We don't have a ton of time to touch on this, but you should know this, that uh, every decision that our elders make for this church it comes from a time, a significant time of prayer, discussion. We all make decisions unanimously. And so every decision for this church comes with complete unanimity. Unanimity. Say that five times fast later. Every single decision, right? And so we're not perfect and we stumble, we fumble along. Um, we're still growing in our faith. And, uh, and so we're definitely not perfect, but you should know that uh, every decision comes like that. And so we have five elders, and, uh, and so five men who are spirit-filled, who are dedicated to this role, who are praying and fasting, who are following God's word, are seeking to line ourselves up with God's will for this church. And you should know that every decision that comes has come because these five men in this room agree completely on which way the church should go in this, in this way. And so again, we've made plenty of mistakes, but you should be confident that when a decision comes for the life of our church, it's come through those means. And so, um, and, and so it's very important that we know this. And of course, we need help from our church. So our church, oftentimes, you guys have better ideas than us, and we need to hear, we need to hear from you. Um, but you should know that this is the way that the church should work so far. They should agree in doctrine. The congregation should agree with the leadership. The leadership should have agreement amongst itself. And so uh, you might say, well, how do I know to, to, that the leadership is, is leading me in the right direction if I'm supposed to just trust them and follow them? Well, you have to trust your leadership. Plain and simple, right? You gotta trust your leadership. And uh, the Bible tells you what to do. And so we, we need to follow what God's word says more than what we feel. Now, what about the appointment of, of these leaders? Well, 
I wanted you to see in Titus 1.5, I'll just read it to you, right before the first, this list of qualifications. We've talked about agreement. Uh, we've talked about agreement in doctrine, agreement among the congregation, agreement among the elders. What about this appointment of, of these leaders? Well, right before, again, this list of qualifications in Titus, uh, this is what Paul says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, listen now. I know I'm a little all over the place with these principles, but just listen. This is talking about the appointment of these elders. This is where we get the idea that elders appoint other what? Elders. And we see this also in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. The apostles were the leaders of the church at this point in church history. And they said, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what we see done here is that there's prayer, there's fasting, there's a ceremony of sorts of committing someone to the Lord, right? And, uh, and um, then there's this appointing by other leaders, qualified leaders of the church. And by the way, let me just tell you this, Acts chapter 11, verse 30 is the first time that we see these men, these pastors or overseers of the church mentioned. And they soon begin to occupy this leading role. It's passed from the apostles to these pastors teaching, uh, these pastor teachers. And so they, the apostles or the New Testament prophets were the leaders of the church, and then they passed this to the elders. And Ephesians chapter two, verse 20 affirms that because it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the, and the, and the prophets, the New Testament prophets. You only build the foundation how many times? Once. That's why we know there's no succession of apostles today. There's foundation that's built on the apostles teaching. And then they transfer this leadership of the church to these elders or pastors or, or, or overseers. And um, we know that the church is built on the apostles' teaching. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, uh, you are the, uh, the, the rock and on this rock I will build my what? Church, what he's saying to Peter there, some pe people talk that say that Jesus is referring to himself. That would be pretty hard to, to say in terms of what the text is actually saying. He's referring to Peter, but not Peter alone. He's, all, he's also referring to Peter as a representative of the what? Of all the apostles. So Peter, the apostles, their teaching was the foundation on which the church was built. And then that leadership was transferred from these leaders to those leaders, which are the elders. So the transition from the apostles to the elders, it's a transition out of the apostles um, era. And so when we're back to Titus 1.5, there's a, appointed elders by elders. By the way, 1 Timothy 4.14 also makes that clear. Now the congregation is involved. You might have some reasons, right, that you say, well, you're appointing this elder. And uh, I, I know some things about that man that I don't think um, he's qualified to be that elder, right? And so he doesn't meet that standards. But even then, the elders would assess the validity of those claims. They would come back and they would decide whether or not to appoint this man um, as an elder. And so that's why we give in our members meeting time for people to respond as we put someone forward for eldership. They, they have time to respond as to whether or not uh, they want to give some um, insight or some contribution to the appointment of that particular elder. So Titus 1.5 also gives us another principle um, that there should be a plurality. He, he says to Timothy, it's why I left you here, or uh, Titus, he says, it's why I left you here, to appoint 
elders, plural, right? Elders, plural. And so the church is to be led by a plurality of elders that are appointed by other elders after agreement on doctrine, agreement from the congregation, and, uh, and they're to have complete agreement in their decision-making and leadership of the church. And then he says this in Titus 1. I should have had you turn there because I'm referencing it so much, but you can look at it later. He says, appoint elders in every what? Every city or every town, right? And so this is how, you know, this is, there was one church for every city. We don't have the buffet line like we have today, right? And so, um, and so these, these elders are appointed over this, over this church to agree doctrinally. They have the same agreement and the decision-making process. They're appointed by other elders through fasting and praying. They have a, a ceremony um, to dedicate to the Lord. There's a plurality. They're to be within local church. And uh, by the way, because they're to be in e within each local church, within each town or city we see here, right? We understand that the church is to be autonomous. What that means is it's to be locally uh, governed by its elders within the church under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In every town, those elders were appointed to govern the church, right? There was no outside leadership. And so there's no hierarchy. We understand that from the scriptures, like other denominations, like the Catholic denomination, or like uh, uh, there's no denominational leadership from outside the church, right? There are to be appointing elders or to be appointing elders in every town. And so I already mentioned Hebrews 13, but they're to be accountable for the souls of the people. Now, listen, listen now. Okay, that's a pretty weighty responsibility, isn't it? To be accountable for somebody's what? Soul. To be accountable for somebody's soul. Now, that's how we understand also that there's to be elders within each congregation and there's to be church membership. Because I can't be accountable for, by, for every person who just walks in this door any given Sunday, right? Just because you walk in here, I'm not accountable for your soul. But I'm accountable for those who have committed to submit to this what? church to this leadership, right? And so there's, there's elders for particular souls at particular places, particular churches, and, um, and who commit to this leadership. And, um, and by the way, let me just tell you this. I'm just kind of listing off here, but uh, you can take all this and we can talk about it later if you'd like. That's why for you to say, well, I love religion or I love Christ, but I don't go to church anywhere would be completely unbiblical because here what we understand from the scriptures is that every Christian is to be submitted to what? Elders, to elders. If you're not submitted to elders and you're a Christian, then you're living in disobedience. It's, that's a desirable thing, right? To live on an island as a Christian, but it's not healthy. It's not healthy. So that's why church membership, by the way, has to be held in high esteem, high esteem, because we are letting those in whom we will be accountable for their souls. We got to make sure that they're believers in Christ, make sure that the trajectory of their life is, is heading towards what the scriptures say, etc. right? And they are to submit to, to the leadership. Now, let me just tell you this before I move to this third section. This is why also when somebody leaves our church, uh, e even for, for a biblical reason, right? Like they're moving cities, right? Remember, you're to be a member of a church within each town or city, right? Even when they leave our church, you know what we do? We send a letter that says, we release you from the submission to our leadership and we are released for the accountability of your soul. Every person who leaves. Why? Not because we're trying to be conceited, but by, because we're trying to take this role very seriously. Uh, we are accountable for the souls of the people in whom we lead. And also those souls are accountable to us um, to submit to the leadership. And so this is part of the 
the idea of eldership in the church, right? There are these pastors, these overseers, these, uh, these shepherds, these teachers. Uh, they're, they're called elders. These elders are to have agreement doctrinally. They're to have agreement from the congregation. They're to agree among themselves in the decision-making process. They're to be appointed by other elders. They're accountable for people's souls. Those people are accountable to them. They're to be local in each congregation. There's not to be any outside leadership or oversight. And, um, and so this is part of, part of it. And so um, this is a sobering reality about this leadership, about this office, about this role. And uh, it's really important that we get this right. Now, you've probably had a belly full or an ear full or a head full or something full. Um, but, uh, but I want to talk about one more aspect of this, okay? I'm just trying to kind of give you a an exhaustive scope, not to make you exhausted, but to um, give you an exhaustive scope so that maybe you can do a little bit more study later. But um, I wanna give you this last point here, which I'm gonna give you some headings underneath, and this might be the most interesting one to you, so maybe we'll do a standalone message on this later on, um, on this aspect uh, in, in the future. So who is appointed to this role, and how are they appointed? And of course, we can't reveal all of this, but I want to talk about then number three here, the person, the person. And I wanna land in 1 Timothy chapter three. So go ahead and turn there, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter three. And I want you to hear about this person, this person, or the, the, the people that are appointed to this role. 1 Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven, I'm just gonna go ahead and read it. It says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's a big principle there. If you put people who are immature in their faith in positions of leadership within the church, the result will always be what? Pride, right? Pride. And so it's very important. You watch this. Verse seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace into the snare of the the devil. And so we see this list here of qualifications. This is one of the main um, passages of qualifications for elders. The other one's in, in Titus, um, and we, we referenced it, but I didn't turn there. And so a lot of people ask, well, how do I know who's called to this? How do, we know, how do I know if I'm called to this, if I'm called to be an elder in the church one day? And like I said, we don't have time to unpack all of these aspects, but I want to see if I can just help you a little bit. The call to pastoral ministry, and that's really what it is. It's this call to, to pastoral ministry. It should be up on the screen as we, uh, as we see some of these points to give you um, some things to hang your hat on here, okay? So the call to pastoral ministry. Number one, what we understand is that there's compulsion. There's compulsion. Just pretend only one's coming up at a time so you can only see one of it here, okay? It's the call to pastoral ministry. And there's the first idea is compulsion, okay? There's a compulsion here, okay? What do I mean by compulsion? Well, look at verse, chapter three, starting in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be what? Or to the office of what? Overseer. He desires a noble task. So you say, if I, am I called to pastoral ministry? How do I know? Well, there first must be a compulsion. Uh, there's a desire, a strong desire. You can't do anything else. You have a passion to lead God's church, right? If you can do anything else, then you what? You should. 
You should, um, because the, the road is hard and the, the road is long and you're gonna become disillusioned over time. Many people come into ministry, say, I'm gonna be the next so-and-so. I'm gonna get on the TV. I'll get on the radio. I want all these people to hear me. And then they realize that they actually have to lead souls and this is pretty difficult of a role. It's 24-7. It's a lifestyle. It takes not only your skill set, but it takes your character. You gotta, this is, involves every aspect of your life to lead God's church, right? And so this has to be a, a, a desire. And if you don't have a desire that is unavoidable, then you shouldn't do it, right? And yet it's the most important job in the world. You are telling the world what God, what? Says. And so it's, you have to have this irresistible, persistent impulse and to believe that it's prompted by the Holy Spirit inside this inward calling. And uh, notice here in verse three that this is reserved for males also. Only men are to take this office. And we see that all throughout the scripture, all throughout the scripture. And uh, deacon can be both. And if you have any questions about any of that, I would love to help point you to the scriptures as to how we see that those two offices, the male, uh, the eldership reserved for men, for men and deacon, um, which can be both men and, and, woman, and women. And so there's this internal calling of God. And by the way, he says that this is a noble task. That's why number two, there must be character. There must be character. Okay, so you can entitle this the calling to pastoral ministry. And there's first compulsion. First compulsion, right? Desire, strong desire, unavoidable desire. Secondly, there's character. There must be character that matches. Now look at this in verses two through seven. There is, therefore, an overseer must be what? Above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, must, might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of, a devil, of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might fall, not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. And so there's this character issue. Now, let me just tell you this. This is the one that's most often avoided. Uh, the churches look for one who is super skilled, who's a dynamic communicator, who's a great leader, who dresses uh, unbelievable, and uh, who can get, uh, can get the church looking great and, and get a lot of hype. But you have to understand that this is the, the, this is the majority of this section is defining the person's character. They have to be a person who is, who is of holy character. You remember, I wish I had time to unpack each one of these, and someday I will as we get to this, as we get through 1 Timothy, get to 1 Timothy um, as a church. But if you have desire, but you don't have the character, you're not called, okay? It doesn't mean that you never were these things. All these things are in present tense, okay? Um, so some people used to be a drunkard, then Christ changed their life, and then you'll see them uh, later on in their life as elders in the church. What an incredible story of God's grace, but, the, but it can't mean that they're not there yet, it can't mean that they're not there yet. They have to be there and they have to be there consistently with consistency, with history, for, with longevity. Remember, the pastor, the elder, the shepherd, the overseer, the teacher is supposed to be an example to the flock. What that really means is that really all Christians should aspire to that list that we see. If they're to be an example, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Really, all Christians should aspire to be what we see in the list of overseers, right? Those character qualities and examples. But this elder must be there. He's not perfect by any means, but he's there. And so uh, there's too many people who call themselves pastors, call themselves is the operative phrase, 
And, uh, and yet, biblically, they're not because they don't meet these qualifications in terms of character. And we know that the scripture says that sin will find you out. If you have hidden sin in your life, it will be found out. It will find you out. It will be uncovered. It will be exposed. And so the pressures of ministry, especially, will expose hidden sins of people over time. Time and truth go hand in hand. And so much hurt happens to churches when leaders who have pragmatic skills don't have the character. And, uh, and so by God's grace, these leaders have to stay this way. We've seen what moral failures do in the churches. And what does it do to the church? It absolutely destroys them. And so you got to be listened. Now you might say, oh, you might think of the most grotesque sins, but let me just tell you, there, there's a lot here that must be included in this character. You must be consistently de- able to deny the world. Some people are carried off by their passions to, to follow the world. You must have courage to stand for the truth. You must do what's right and not what just simply pragmatically works. You got to have a willingness to suffer for the name. Right? There's a lot that goes into this. Really, the whole book of 2 Timothy talks about this willingness to suffer. And so there has to be this character. Now, let me move us along. We're almost done. There's got to be this competency. Competency. Verse number three. And uh, verses, verse two and verse four point to this, really, this competency here. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Here it is. Here's a skill. Hospitable and able to what? Teach. There's a competency level here. And not only that, but we, if we move to, uh, to um, verse 4, he also must be able to what? Manage his own what? House. There's got to be an ability here. There's got to be competency, ability here. Now listen, this is very important. To, to able to teach and to manage his own house. Able to teach, that doesn't just mean you're a great or, orator. You, you got to do more than be able to just captivate an audience. You got to teach the word rightly. That's why 2 Timothy 2, uh, 15 says you, have to, you should rightly divide the what? The word of truth, right? And so it, this is the person who clearly, accurately, passionately, uh, c- uh, consistently explains the scriptures, declares what the word says, and declares what God means by what he says and does so regularly. And so this is a competency in this. And you must have a competency to manage the home, spiritual leadership. Because teaching, it doesn't just mean in the pulpit. I'm the main teacher of this church. But listen, plenty of our other guys are teaching all the time in discipleship, in, in all these counseling situations, right? There's leadership, there's vision, there's decision-making, there's wisdom, there's protection, but there's this ability to teach and this ability to manage. And this is what Charles Spurgeon said, by the way, um, when talking about the skill set for the pastor. He says this, men, uh, mere ability to edify and aptness to teach is not enough. There must be other talents, talking about competency here, for the pastoral character. Sound judgment, solid experiment to, uh, experience to instruct you. Gentle manners, loving affections must um, sway you. Firmness and courage must be manifest. The tenderness and sympathy must not be lacking. Gift uh, of administration and ruling well is a requisite, as, just as much of a requisite as gifts of instructive instruction and teaching well. He must be fitted to lead, prepared to endure, able to persevere. In grace, you should uh, uh, you should uh, be 
You should be head and shoulders above the rest of the people, able to be their father and their counselor. That's what Charles Spurgeon says about the competency level of this. So you must have spiritual gifts uh, uh, for, this, for this role. And, um, and so he must know where to take the church and have zeal to get there. Now, let me, let me give you a couple more. There must be conviction. There must be conviction. And what I mean by conviction, if you go to Titus chapter one, we're almost done, just turn with me. Come on, endure here. Titus chapter one. We see this list of qualifications in verses five through nine, right? But then we see in verse 10, Paul gets, uh, he gets pretty scrappy here with, with Titus, right? He's encouraging him to do some pretty, pretty strong things. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, and all th- uh, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but, uh, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, it's no coincidence here that he's given the qualifications for eldership, and then he's giving these instructions to Titus right after. And what we understand here, th- this, this is important, because what we understand is that this pastor must have conviction. In other words, what I mean by this is he must be entirely convinced of what he's doing entirely convinced of his message because he's going to have to point out what's wrong, right? He's going to have to point out what's wrong and uh, he's going to have to show them um, where their error is and he's going to have to be ridiculed and persecuted and mocked for this, right? And so he's, he, must, he, he must have clear conviction of this message that he, that he preaches. He, you, you, you have to have something in you that says, I can't do anything but teach what is here, right? And uh, we know that Paul in uh, 2 Timothy says to Timothy, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed, right? I know whom I've believed. And you got to be one who for a lifetime knows what you believe, right? That's the person here that leads, leads the church. And so um, he, must, uh, he must know what he believes. Now, there's two more. One is crisis. Number five here, crisis. And what do I mean by crisis? I'll just you know, uh, tell you this pretty briefly. Well, what I mean here is that there's a pattern in the, in, the, in the scriptures that the ones who are called to ministry, right? We see a pattern, I believe, in the scripture that God so orchestrates the events so orchestrates the events of someone's life that in his providence, he drives this person to ministry, right? He so orchestrates the the movement or the patterns of the life in his providence and sovereignty that he would drive this person to ministry, uh, drive this person to submit to some mentors, to get some training, to tell their family, to endure suffering, uh, to uh, to, to follow somebody's lead, to go to seminary, which is, by the way, important um, that you do that if you're called to ministry. And so God, in his movement, there's got to be activity by God in the person's life that seems to be moving this person towards the direction of ministry. Now, let me say this at the very end, number five, there should, or uh, what am I on? Six here. We should be, uh, there needs to be some confirmation. And what I mean by confirmation is, 
is confirmation by elders or leaders outside of this person's life. And what I mean by that is they should be submitted to some elders in their church who affirm that they have the giftings, the calling, the character, the competency. All of us are right in our own what? Eyes. But you got to get somebody outside of that, particularly the leaders that God has put over you in the Lord to help you um, recognize this, to then to send you, to commission you, to train you. And if you're called to ministry and there's no biblical church elders behind you, either sending you out or appointing you to a position of leadership, that's a red flag. If you got someone on their own who says, I'm going to go start a church and they've got no biblical church behind them with elders who are intimately involved in all of that, that's a red flag. And that's not the biblical pattern for for leadership. You see this laying on of hands, right? And uh, Paul says to Timothy um, that this shouldn't be done um, quickly, hastily in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And you know why he says that? Because some sins don't come out until later, he says. 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says that to Timothy. Don't be hasty. Don't be quick to lay on of hands because some sins won't be exposed uh, until later. But this laying on of hands is symbolic is symbolic of an affirmation of this person by the elders that we affirm that all of this lines up. Everything that I've talked about today, the position, these practical principles, this calling is all there. It's all lining up. It's all understood. It's all affirmed. And we commission this person to eldership. And so today, that's exactly what we're going to do with Mike. We're going to sit him down. We're going to, uh, our elders are going to come up here in just a second. We're going to lay our hands on him. There's no transfer of, of power to Mike, right? It's just a symbol uh, representing um, that we affirm um, uh, this. We've given time for feedback from the congregation. He's had over a year of training. He's had really kind of an internship in the past few months in terms of being involved in every aspect of our leadership. And today is this ceremony, as I mentioned earlier, where we commit him uh, to the Lord. So let me pray now and, uh, and then uh, let me invite him up in a second. And by the way, if you have any questions about this, I know I, I kind of had to fit everything in pretty quickly, but the position um, the, the names, the titles, the principles that were kind of random. And then the person, uh, this, this calling to pastoral ministry, which I believe these are the six, um, six uh, aspects of it. Um, I would love to help you with any of this, okay? But let me pray, and then I'm gonna invite Mike up and the rest of our elders. Father, thank you for your word. It gives us clarity about all of this. Uh, I know we had a lot to pack in today, um, but hopefully... Um, your word is, is understood and, and there's some clarity and that we might be people who follow your word. Um, Lord, we wanna be people who treat this position right, who follow all of the practical principles about this position and who have the right people in this position. And so I think these are the three really important aspects of, of this as we talk about this doctrine. God, as we call up Mike here in just a minute, we lay our hands on him. There's really not much more work to do or anything else to be said. We've done it all in the past year and a half. Really, all I want to do today, as we do here in a minute, is just lay our hands on him, affirm, uh, commit him to the Lord as we saw um, instructed in your word, and, um, and let it be a celebration for the people who are here of this church and of this, uh, of this family. And so we, we give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.